1: In 1996, then-Senator Joe Biden voted for sharp reductions in cash payments for single mothers, arguing that the culture of welfare must be replaced with the culture of work. 25 years later, his administration is promoting the biggest expansion of the American welfare state since the 1960s. Can Mr. Biden Europeanize American social policy? You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Simon Long, Editor-at-Large at The Economist. Coming up on today's show, the pandemic has normalized working from home. But what happens to the office if workers stay there?
2: Even after offices open up, many people will continue to work remotely. What commercial property owners are trying to figure out is how this will impact their investments. And
1: June is Pride Month. But how should companies appeal to and welcome their LGBTQ customers?
0: In the early 1980s, Absolute Vodka was one of the first consumer brands to go after the gay consumer.
1: First, President Joe Biden has unveiled his $6 trillion budget request for the 2022 fiscal year is to be financed by raising taxes for corporations and the richest Americans. And the plan includes hefty sums, not just for jobs and infrastructure, but for education and social services. I'm not looking to punish anyone. I just think after decades of workers getting a raw deal, it's time they be given a fair shake. It would take the country to its highest sustained levels of spending since the Second World War. Mr. Biden calls his plan a blue-collar blueprint for America. Everyone is going to be in on the deal this time. To make sure that's the case, he's proposing an ambitious reweaving of the social safety net. It also includes several new housing and small business programmes to narrow the wealth gap between black and white Americans. But critics are calling the plan grandiose, overgenerous, and risky.
3: President Biden has laid out a $1.8 trillion plan that he's calling the American Families Plan that attempts to not only remedy the economic damage of the pandemic, but to correct some of the deficiencies in the welfare state that have existed for the last 50 years.
1: Idris Karloon is Washington correspondent for The Economist.
3: He is trying to institute not just means-tested policies, but policies that would pay the middle class substantial sums. In short, he is attempting to Europeanize the American welfare state.
1: That sounds extraordinarily ambitious. How is he proposing to do it?
3: Among the programs that he aims to pay for are a generous child allowance, paid family leave program, which America lacks, a universal preschool program for three and four-year-olds, heavy subsidies for childcare, and also two years of free community college. Right now in America, just 0.6% of GDP is spent on family benefits, and that's less than a third of the 2.1% that is the average in the OECD.
1: Joe Biden, and indeed the Democratic Party as a whole, haven't always been in favor of that, have they? I mean, how have they moved to such a broad embrace of deficit-funded expansion?
3: 25 years ago, Democrats were passing Bill Clinton's welfare reforms, which were all about work and reducing the disincentives for employment. That was the focus of welfare policy. There are a couple of things that have changed, I think, in the interceding period. One is a greater attention to inequality and its effects on the economy and indeed on, on politics. Democrats are worried That inequality has given Republicans an opportunity for populism. There is also just a change in attitudes towards spending. The Republican Party, when in government, has spent much more than it argues should be spent uh, under Democratic administrations. All of that was probably helped by the fact that there was large spending to contain the COVID 19 pandemic, many times greater than was spent after the Great Recession, and none of which triggered the sort of backlash of the Tea Party that you saw 10 years ago. There's been a real change in that way and also I think within the Democratic Party there's been a clear leftward shift and the moderates which Biden is certainly a member of see their role as as moving I think along with that so rather than proposing Medicare for all they pivot to something that's a little bit more center left european than what we had 25 years ago
1: can we take a closer look at some of the policies that are being proposed it seems a lot of them are aimed at reducing child poverty i mean how big a problem is that in america today
3: It's quite a big problem. By the government's own accounting, uh, one in six kids in this country are poor, and that's among the highest in, in the rich world.
1: That really is striking. Why?
3: Well, it used to be the case that the elderly in America were among the poorest. This was before the War on Poverty was launched in the 1960s. And the expansion of programs like Social Security, which provide pensions and, and Medicare, provided a great deal of support. And so elderly Americans are now, thankfully, among the least poor groups. At the same time, there has not been much attention to support for young Americans. So programs that existed, like a welfare program called TANF or, or WIC, these don't provide a terribly large amount of support. So, so families that are poor Tend not to get much cash assistance, and ultimately that's what leads to the continuance of poverty at such high rates. The generous child allowance that's proposed in this plan, and it will continue for about a year because of the COVID 19 bill, is expected to come close to having child poverty on its own. And indeed, a child allowance is, is the main anti poverty tool in quite a few rich countries, including Canada. The proposal that that Biden has laid out on on the Families Plan also includes a boost to the Earned Income Tax Credit, which basically tops up the wages for low-paid working adults, which should also have some substantial anti-poverty effect. But in sum, the plan lays out a strategy to reducing this very high rate of child poverty in America by close to half. And because of the fact that racial minorities in America are poorer than, than white children, we expect that there'll probably be even greater than half reductions in child poverty for African-American and Hispanic children.
1: I think it's the case, isn't it, that some of these policies, say a paid family leave, universal preschool, have actually already been implemented in some states. What does their experience tell you about how effective they are?
3: California was the earliest adopter of paid family leave in America and a lot of the evidence on what it might do for the rest of the country is taken from that state. So the the studies there have found that infant health and maternal health and, and rates of breastfeeding have all increased. There is also some evidence that it had a positive effect on mothers taking up jobs but the evidence on whether or not it actually substantially affects employment I think is still a bit mixed. Universal preschool has been tried in some states, even Republican states like Oklahoma, and the evidence there for kids tracking them all the way into middle school is that that there still seem to be some positive effects. So people are hopeful that a universal preschool program could do some good for lots of three and four-year-olds. Obviously, it's only available to those who live in states that have a program already set up.
1: As I understand it, the proposals are presented as race neutral, and I can see that would make them more politically palatable. But since a lot of the inequalities we're talking about are very much based or differentiated by race, how much difference could these proposals make to the racial wealth divide?
3: I think they could make quite a lot of difference. In general, policies that provide supports will have a salutary benefit on, on racial gaps because more minorities are poorer. So I mentioned, for example, that with the child tax credit case, the anti-poverty effect there is going to be greater for African-American children and Hispanic children. The expansion of Medicaid, which happened as part of Obamacare, over the past 10 years has helped reduce the share of uninsured African-Americans by 40 percent, and that's that's more than the general decrease in, in the uninsured population. So these policies, while they're they're facially race-neutral will make a dent in the racial income gap as a result. The wealth gap is, is a harder question because you can think of the wealth gap as the accumulation of, of decades of income gaps. So that's a harder thing to try and, and, and unravel. And I think there are a separate suite of policies that would target that a bit better. Some folks have proposed things like baby bonds, which would you know basically accumulate savings for, for children for 18 years and then give it to them. There are some housing proposals that, that could make a dent. The ones that are laid out in the family plan will probably uh, reduce the income gap, but I think the wealth gap would take a bit more time, or at least these, th- these effects would have to accumulate if you were to make any headway into those very stubborn gaps.
1: We've been talking about all of this as if it's definitely going to happen, but how, how right is that? I mean, what odds does Mr. Biden have of turning his plans into reality? And how's he going to pay for it all?
3: Yes, that is the big question. So there is a path for him passing this in Congress because Democrats control the Senate and they control the House. And although the filibuster remains in the Senate, much of this conventional spending can be accomplished through reconciliation, meaning that theoretically, on a straight party line vote, Mr. Biden could have his way entirely. Now, that's dependent on a perfect democratic unity, which has not always been the case. And this is going to wind its way through Congress for, I expect, a few months before we get any any resolution onto whether or not it, it actually has a chance of, of going through. There is a path, but you know it's going to be hard work for for the White House. Certainly, as far as paying for it all, he has laid out a, a set of policies that would raise revenue that he says are sufficient to cover the costs of this expanded welfare state. Principally, that's raising taxes on corporations, high-income Americans, raising taxes on foreign profits of American headquartered multinationals. He claims that the math works when independent modelers at the penn Wharton budget model look at it, they think that actually his spending is gonna exceed the amount that he raises, but roughly, he's making an attempt to balance the trillions. He's not trying to entirely deficit finance all of it. I think that's gonna be important, not only because Americans like the feeling of fiscal solvency and, and fiscal rectitude, but also because his his Republican critics are quite keen to argue that Biden is mismanaging the economy by triggering inflation. And uh, obviously, proposing trillions in additional spending is not going to help with that either.
1: Idriss Kahloun, thanks very much. Thank you, Simon. This week's episode of Checks and Balance, our American politics podcast, will unpack an idea at the root of a lot of American thinking about these issues. Meritocracy. Americans since Thomas Jefferson have been inspired by the idea that success could be open to anyone. But when social mobility has stalled and populists on both right and left see a country captured by self-serving elites, can America's meritocratic ideals survive? That's Checks and Balance, out Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Next, For many people, getting up early every workday to travel into the office might seem like a distant memory. The pandemic forced a work-from-home revolution, which has left millions of commercial properties around the world largely vacant. Some cities have started to reopen for business, and companies are waiting anxiously to see how many employees trickle back. But empty offices could spell wider financial trouble if workers don't return quickly enough, or indeed at all.
2: A lot of offices are still empty, despite vaccine efforts ramping up in many parts of the rich world.
1: Vinjero Makandawire is The Economist's global property correspondent.
2: In early May, only 1 in 20 buildings in America had occupancy levels above 10%, compared with a third in Europe and Africa, and roughly half of buildings in Asia. That's partly down to restrictions that are still in place. In Britain, for example, people who can work from home are still advised to do so. Even after offices open up, many people will continue to work remotely. What commercial property owners are trying to figure out is how this will impact their investments. Fitch, one of the credit ratings agencies, estimates that the value of workplaces in America could fall by more than half if workers continue to work from home, even for three days a week.
1: Just how are companies and developers going about trying to tempt workers back to their desks?
2: Companies and developers are using brand new buildings or offices that have recently been refurbished to appeal to workers who would otherwise stay home. Offices are being kitted out with rooftop swimming pools, gyms and spas. Plans for Amazon's second headquarters in Arlington, Virginia, will include an amphitheater for outdoor concerts. Sustainable net zero buildings are also high on the agenda. It was a trend before COVID, but it's now expected to accelerate. So things like energy efficiency and air filtration systems are now seen as essential for developers and tenants. Office owners are also getting creative with sustainable construction materials such as timber. So despite this image of empty offices during lockdown, the pandemic has actually sharpened demand for newer buildings with better and greener facilities.
1: It sounds great, but... These buildings with amphitheatres, fancy air filtration systems and so on, must be a small minority, right? Most of them are the plain, run-of-the-mill sort of office I've been used to for most of my career, right? What's going to happen to all those old places?
2: Yes, exactly. Um, Owning older buildings that can't be refurbished or aren't in the best location does carry a lot of risk. One of Manhattan's largest office landlords has already said that rents at its older properties are down by as much as 10%. The worry now is that without substantially lower rents or improved ventilation, or even things like access to outdoor space and natural light, many of these older buildings might struggle to sell or attract tenants. Property developers are getting around this in two ways firstly by renovating their older buildings. So there's a 1960s building in London that's getting a rooftop forest and a glass-floored infinity swimming pool which will be heated using the building's excess energy. Secondly, buildings that can't be refurbished will be converted into other uses such as lab and research space. That's happening a lot in California and places like Boston or housing which has been happening in Manhattan for decades.
1: How many companies are rethinking what they actually need in terms of property?
2: I would say that the pandemic has forced most companies to rethink their office space. But because of the long-term nature of property leases, we could only start to see stranded assets once the leases start to expire. And by that, I mean buildings that are no longer desirable to tenants and have to be repurposed into other uses, such as housing or research space and lab space. We know that some companies are already delaying new leases or even downsizing. HSBC, for example, has come forward to say it will cut its office footprint by 20%. JP Morgan has also said that it will need significantly less office space in the coming years. Already, More than 103 million square feet of office space has been vacated since the pandemic began. That's a stat by Cushman and Wakefield. To put that in context, that's 18% more floor space lost than during the financial crisis. So the idea of stranded assets could become a reality, it just hasn't happened to the same extent as previous downturn.
1: That said, as you were pointing out earlier, the return to work in a lot of countries is really only just beginning. So how can you tell now whether what we're seeing is just a hangover from the fierceness of the lockdowns or the beginning of what really might be a serious financial reckoning for commercial property?
2: Well, it isn't clear yet whether the pandemic will result in a temporary or permanent shock to demand. At the moment, rent collection rates are still high and office property valuations have stayed relatively flat. Government stimulus and the availability of debt mean that there haven't been as many defaults as perhaps some expected. Also, it's hard to predict how many workers will stay home and for how much of the week. So there's still a lot of uncertainty in the commercial property sector.
1: And if we are seeing major disruption beginning to surface in that sector, how serious would the consequences be? I mean, it's a very important asset type for all sorts of investors, pension funds, for example, isn't it?
2: Yes, it could have very serious consequences for the entire financial system. The sector accounts for about a fifth of all loans issued by American banks at a value of over $2 trillion. So the banks have really high exposure, and that could threaten wider financial stability. You also mentioned pension funds, Pension funds around the world are invested in commercial property, so any major disruption could put that pension money at stake.
1: So what indicators should we be looking at, Fingeru, to decide or to gauge just how serious commercial property's problems are?
2: A lot will depend on what happens to vacancy rates of buildings, which means the number of buildings that are vacant or unoccupied. So far, forecasts suggest that roughly one in five offices in America could be empty next year. Sustained vacancy rates are expected to impact the valuations of offices. That said, losses from the pandemic may not even materialize for several years. So there is still a lot of uncertainty and it is difficult for investors to tell which way this is going to go.
1: Ventura and Makandawiri, thanks very much. Thank you. And for more on how the world of business is adapting to a post-pandemic future, subscribe to The Economist. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link's in the show notes. And finally, June marks Pride Month in honour of the 1969 Stonewall Uprising, a series of demonstrations in Manhattan that became a landmark moment for the movement for gay rights. Many brands use pride as an opportunity to show support for LGBTQ people. Take Lego. The toy maker has just released an inclusive new set called Everyone is Awesome, featuring a rainbow flag and diverse figurines. But earnest attempts to broaden a brand's appeal can sometimes backfire.
0: The new set launched by Lego on June 1st consists of 11 monochromatic figures, all in different colours, and all of them non-gendered, except for one purple drag queen.
1: von Vombredo is European business and finance correspondent for The Economist.
0: Marketing queer-themed products can be either a great boon or humiliating embarrassment for consumer goods companies.
1: So it seems as if brands increasingly are releasing products aimed at customers who've previously been overlooked. Uh, What's going on here?
0: Well it's a mix of goodwill and commercial considerations. On the one hand you know there's a big group, I mean by some estimates uh, five or even ten percent of the world population is gay, but consumer goods companies have always been careful to advertise to them because of course it can clash with religious customs or cultural sensitivities. In the early 1980s, Absolute Vodka, which is a very hip tipple that's made in Sweden, was one of the first consumer brands to go after the gay consumer. And they did it by advertising in gay media outlets, by sponsoring gay events such as the Pride Parade, or by giving to gay charities. But then others have either waited or it's also sometimes gone wrong.
1: Indeed, whenever a brand takes a position seen by some as, I suppose, political as as well as ethical, climate change, guns, they often face a backlash. And so has this Lego launch done that? I mean, what's been the reaction?
0: Some evangelical Christian groups were already up in arms. So there is Albert Moeller, who is the the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville in Kentucky. He thinks, of course, it's a sign of the moral confusion of our times that Lego would be launching such a set. He's slightly confusing the fact that it's actually not for children, but for adults, but, but it's all part of him being very outraged and his, his parish and, and, and imploring his parishioners, of course, not to buy the new set.
1: And I suppose there's some parts of the world where Lego won't even dare do this.
0: Yes, so Lego decided not to sell its new set in Saudi Arabia, in Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, Malaysia and Indonesia. The argument is that all, in all these countries it can be unsafe to display one's sexual identity. And so, first of all, there's simply probably not the demand for such a product, but there's also concern for the safety of customers. LEGO is still pondering whether to launch in Russia in July. They think they will do it, but it's not entirely decided yet.
1: What about the reaction from LGBTQ people themselves? Are they universally welcoming this approach?
0: Well, there are a few Examples of a backlash against consumer goods companies that, that got it wrong. And one is Marks & Spencer, a British retailer that launched in 2019 an LGBTQ sandwich with lettuce, bacon, guacamole and tomato. And the gay community was enraged by basically, they felt they're being equated to a Sony. Last year, the CEO of Hallmark TV had to quit um, his job because he initially pulled an ad showing a same-sex couple getting married and kissing that was shown on his TV network and then reinstated it. And every time he was reacting to a popular outcry and that created so much discontent amongst Hallmark customers that in the end the parent company decided he had to go.
1: So it's it's hard to get right then. I mean, how to communicate support for the group you're targeting without appearing to be uh, exploitative or engaging in a kind of cultural appropriation, I suppose, and risking a backlash. How should companies think about that?
0: It is hard to get right. And I suppose for an understandable reason, because on the one hand, it's a very attractive group of consumers because they're often trendsetters. There are many of them. Their spending power is higher than on average than the average population All that makes them a very attractive group of consumers. So, Lego is actually seen as an example of a company doing it right by seemingly making a genuine effort to launch the set, to start a conversation, to be part of the community and not to do it a little bit on the side because it's, it's easy and possibly lucrative. It's interesting, it, these things can turn very quickly, but at the moment it looks like Lego got it right and they waited for a long time, but now they're seen to do the right thing.
1: Wendelin, thanks very much for telling us about it.
0: Always a pleasure, Simon.
1: And that's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Today's producers were William Warren and Amika Shortino-Nolan. I'm Simon Long, and in London, this is The Economist.